All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in First Chronicles chapters 8, 9, and 10. And Lord willing, we'll get through all three of them. Some things that are coming up uh, recent, you know, soon. The prayer is tonight, September 6th, at, uh, from 7 to 8.30. We're adding 30 minutes to it. We're going to do some worship along with it. Um, so that's tonight. Join us if you want to join us for prayer. Um, the men's night out at Mazingo, uh, sponsored by uh, Grace Evangelical. Um, they're a Calvary Chapel affiliate. They'll be doing their men's thing out here at Mazingo, and we're all welcome to join them for that. There's a registration online for that just to let them know you're going to be there. And and really the registration is for if you're going to eat and things like that. If you're not going to eat, I mean, they still want to know you're coming, but um, you can still just show up and sit so and listen and then go home. So it's not, it's, it doesn't cost anything to, to sit there and listen. So that's coming up September 11th. Harvest Party, October 31st, and then we'll be doing a servant training November 8th and 15th. It's just two, um, two days, two, you know, a week apart, and we're just going to spend a couple hours talking about Calvary Chapel philosophy of ministry. So that'll be coming up November 8th and November 15th. Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning, that it's alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit. It's a discerner of hearts. And uh, as we open up your word this morning, we read out of Chronicles of all places, Lord, we see that these things are written for our admonition, that New Testament saints learned and we learn and know what it looks like by these pictures in the Old Testament. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things being documented and written down, these stories honestly told that we might learn from them ourselves and walk our walk um, without making the same mistakes of the past. So give us hearts and ears to receive everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Chronicles is an interesting book with a lot of names in it. We joked around about that two weeks ago um, when we were in one through seven, covered seven chapters. We're only covering three today, but we kind of finish up the names. Remember what the, the, the writer of Chronicles is trying to pull together all the genealogies so we can kind of see uh, the names, and we, and we liken that to a links and chains and kind of connects us from, from the first Adam to the last Adam, Jesus Christ, kind of puts it all together for us, and that the Bible is following a specific train of thought. There's a lot of history going on in the world, but the Bible focuses on the history of Jesus Christ. The volume of the book is written of him, and so we, we venture off and kind of let the reader know what's going on over here and over here, but we quickly focus back on the line of Christ and his uh, generations before him. And so that's kind of where we are. We're, we're doing that. The, the nation of Israel has been taken into captivity. They're in Babylon. Um, they're going to have 70 years there. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that after the second verse here. But they're in Babylon. They've been taken captive and they're going to be there for 70 years. Now, Ezra, Ezra is the one writing the book of Chronicles, we believe. We believe he put this all together. He is the he leads the second wave out of Babylon back to Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel leads the first wave back. Ezra leads, leads the second wave back. And then, of course, Nehemiah leads the third wave back, which is for a different time. But he's the writer. And he's a very good historian. And so he's writing these things down to let the children of Israel know, here's what happened before we went into captivity, why we're in captivity, and, and then also some of the things that happened after we returned. Okay, so he's putting that all down for us. And we can learn from that. We can all learn from these things. Well, we're not Israelites. We're not, no, but we're people. We're people who are going to fall and can fall and are susceptible to falling into the same mistakes and errors that these guys did. 
See, the nation of Israel was to be guided by God, to trust him completely without anybody else in their presence. No other gods, just the true and living God. And he promised them, if you are my people, I'll be your God. But they strayed away. And they went off and did other things that they used to do and, and kind of kept God in their back pocket, but were not, well, they weren't sold out for him. And what that means is they, their heart, mind, and soul wasn't completely his. It was partially his, but not completely his. And that is what caused the problems and allowed sin to enter into the camp and began ultimately to destroy the nation of Israel to the point where they're in captivity now. And so we have this for us to learn from. It's not a great direct correlation. I can't say that we're this or we're that in this story, but boy, just like when you hear a story, someone says this horrible thing happened to my cousin the other day, she was at the mall and whatever, ever, ever. And you kind of like, Whoa, well, I'll have to be remember to remember to not do that kind of thing. And that's the idea behind these stories. In chapter eight, we get the, the lineage of Saul and all the people and all the uh, names, which I'm not going to go through, but the writer here, as he goes over in chapter eight, the history of Kish, which is Saul's ancestry, it, it goes through several generations to let them know that although Saul, the first king of Israel, was removed, killed by the Lord, which we'll see here later on, even though he fell on his own sword, the Bible says he was killed by God, removed or replaced by David. He wasn't forsaken, he wasn't forgotten, and his generations continued on. That's important. We do make catastrophic mistakes sometimes in our walk with the Lord. We've seen lots of preachers fall, and those are the easy targets because they're famous, and we watch them when we uphold them, we put them on a higher standard, we see them fall, and we're like, oh man, can you believe of them, of all, police, of all, of all people, they fell, you know? Well, who did we think they were to begin with? Someone other than a man or a woman? Other than a, a faulty human saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, that they were going to live a perfect life after they received the Lord? Of course not. But because of the way they present themselves and because they're in a position of authority, we're, we're saddened by those things. But it doesn't mean that God's done with them. It just means they need to repent. And they need to get back with God and continue to walk with them. Maybe not in such a public way, but they're still alive, breathing and kicking and, and, and doing their best like the rest of us walking with Jesus and Likewise, with Saul's family, they weren't forsaken completely and utterly. And so that's basically what chapter 8 is. And so verse 1 of chapter 9, we're going to pick it up. So all Israel was recorded by genealogies. And indeed, they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites, and Nethanim, Nethanim, different types of people there that were, were not Nephilim, don't get that confused with those guys, the giants of the land. This is Nethanim. Uh, the priests kind of took care of uh, most of the house of God and the things that would go on inside the temple or tabernacle, depending on the time period. The Levites would do the other things outside, take care of the spiritual needs. They would rotate in and out to take care of the need. And then the Nethanim, they had a little minor roles, you know, throughout, which we'll, we'll go over. Between verses 1 and 2 is a 70-year gap, though. Seven years of captivity have taken place. In verse 1, it says, all Israel was taken out to Babylon. Verse 2, the first inhabitants who dwell in their possession were the Israelites and the priests. They'd come back. The first group to come back were the ones that took care of the house of God. Okay? 
And that's what the writer wants us to know, bringing us back. Now, why 70 years of captivity? Why not 71 or 69? For 490 years, the nation of Israel had not let the land keep its Sabbath. There are other reasons for them going to captivity, but one of the main reasons was while they were there, they weren't letting the land keep its Sabbath. Now, maybe you didn't know you were supposed to let the land keep its Sabbath. You didn't know that was a rule. Well, in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7, God lays it out for them. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. In other words, let it fall to the ground and nourish the soil. Nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, for your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be food for you. Okay? Well, they hadn't been doing that. They, on Wednesday night, we, we kind of hit on that a little bit. They were supposed to not pick up uh, the manna on the seventh day we talked about on Wednesday. The sixth day, you could pick up twice as much manna as the Israelites wanted to, and it would carry you through. And that's the only day that it wouldn't spoil. But on the seventh day, don't pick it up. Just rest. Pick up twice as much the day before. Well, there were always those folks. And they got up on Sunday morning or Saturday morning and got it up and tried to gather some more manna, but there wasn't any. There's always people that try to be hustlers and try to get a little bit ahead. Well, that's what the nation of Israel had done for 490 years in the promised land. Instead of letting the land rest like it needed to, they were wearing it out, just wearing out the soil. And they wouldn't let it have its rest like God said, because they were hustlers. They were going to make a little bit more. One more year of produce. We're going to just get a little bit ahead. If I don't, Bob's going to. If Bob does, and he's going to, you know, there's just this comp- competition going on. Well, God noticed that. He paid attention to that. And he says, no, the land's going to get its rest. For 70 years, I'm going to remove you and put you into the land of Babylon. But not just for this, for other reasons, but it's a side benefit. He never let anybody occupy that land for 70 years. Now, you would think this beautiful land of milk and honey and the population is removed and taken to Babylon, that somehow, some way, another group would come in and occupy it, but they didn't. God preserved it and protected it for them to come back to. And the land had its rest, overgrown for sure when they got back, but nourished again. Now, God had prophesied this. We just read Leviticus 25. Leviticus 26, right after he gave that law, he says in verse 33, after he says, you're probably going to do what you shouldn't do. I will scatter you among the nations and draw you out a sword, draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate uh, and you are in, the, in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. That's amazing for many reasons to me. He called the nation of Israel, pulled them out of Egypt, brought them to the promised land, knowing they probably weren't going to do everything he asked them to do. 
knew it. It wasn't even a guess for him. He says, here's the law. You're going to let the land rest. And then when you don't let it rest, I mean, right afterwards. Now, that's frustrating for me as a human being because I hate that about myself. The promises you make. Oh, yeah. The intentions you have. Anybody have a, a home project at home? You know, the, the kitchen you're going to redo for your wife or the basement you're going to finish or whatever it is. And you're so excited. And then a year and a half later, the studs are still bare. The wiring isn't done or whatever it is that you've done, you know, and you look at it and you don't even want to go down there anymore because you just feel convicted every time you look at it. It's like, oh, there's, there's that project I didn't do that I said I was going to do. So that's the discouraging side for me, knowing my failures and my faults and that I'm just dust like God says I am. But on the bright side, God knew that too. He knew I had good intentions. Remember, they, they, the nation of Israel, when they had come through the Red Sea and, 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 and the manna had showed up and they were, oh, Lord, you're so great. And they sang this beautiful song, a whole chapter's worth of music to the Lord, how great he is and how wonderful he is. And, and God, knowing all things, has to be listening to that, say, this is a beautiful song, but it's going to change. But it, he doesn't get rid of the people. He doesn't say, forget it. He doesn't say, I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to use you because I know you're going to fail next week or in a month or in a couple months. I know you're not going to fulfill all the promises that you swear you're going to do. You know, oh God, from this day forward. Uh, that's one of the things I say when I baptize people. Some. I said, just remember this day. That the reason you're going under the water to symbolize your death, the old man, and rising to new life in Christ you're going to have good days and bad days after this. I said, remember this day. This is the day that you acknowledge the fact that you're going to heaven because of what Jesus did, not because of how you perform from here on out. Yes, we want to be obedient to God. Yes, we want to be holy for he is holy, but chances are I'm going to have those days. And it's on those days that I remember, thank goodness, Christ died on the cross for my sins, and it's not a matter of works that gets me to heaven. I want to work because I'm going to heaven, but I cannot work to go to heaven. And so God shows that to him right in that. Can you imagine writing this down as Moses writes down Leviticus 25 and then Leviticus 26 and says, he's already got us failing. Yeah, he's already got me failing. And yet he's still got me, you see. And so it's encouraging in a way. So 70 years of captivity. Now, like I said, the first group to lead back the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, and the Nethanim was Zerubbabel. He's a, he's a guy, which we'll read about later. We'll read about him in Ezra chapter 2 and Haggai chapter 1. Just a little insight as to who that guy was. The first group to lead the nation of Israel back. And then there'll be a third, second wave Ezra, third wave Nehemiah, which I already shared with you. So, verse 3, chapter 9. Now, in Jerusalem... The children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and of the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the guys that kind of dwelt in Jerusalem. When they came back, the Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanim, those guys that dwelt in Jerusalem, it's kind of their home base. That's where they started. Um, that's where they lived, and some of the tribes came there and dwelt there. And it goes through some of the names, and I'm not going to try to butcher all those names. You can read them on your own. It again describes the priests at Jerusalem what they would do, their roles. He had specific jobs for them. Of the priests, there were Jedediah, Jehorib, and Jakin. 
and so on, and describes these guys. Down at the bottom there, verse 13, they were very able men for work of the service of the house of God. Now, this doesn't just mean they're qualified. If you look in your center column reference of your study Bible, it should say mighty men of strength. It's a military term that they use to describe these priests. Um, These guys were disciplined. They knew how to take orders. They knew that no matter what the obstacle, they needed to improvise, adapt, and overcome, and to do what they were called to do regardless. They had specific jobs that had to happen every single day, regardless of whether they felt like them happening every day or not. None of these guys could do ministry because they felt like doing ministry. They did ministry because they were called to do ministry. It was their job. It was their mission. It's what they lived for. And so God gives them a military-type term to describe these guys, which he does throughout Scripture. We're in a war, always have been. We've never been outside of a war. From Genesis to Revelation, it is a war between good and evil. It's constant. And when you use these war-type phrases, which God does from Genesis to Revelation, for some people who've never been taught that, it's a little disconcerting. We've almost been taught that uh, war is bad. We have, haven't we? We just we, War is not bad ever, except when it's meant for selfish purposes. What if God didn't war for us? What if he didn't fight? What if he didn't battle? I know it's a spiritual warfare, and I'm not talking about physical warfare, although sometimes it does bleed into that, doesn't it? The spiritual bleeds into the physical. We can see that happening today. And it happened during Jesus' time, and it's happened all the time. It's always been that way. Evil doesn't just stay spiritual. It actually shows itself up physically. When Jesus went across the the Sea of Galilee to, um, well, what the guys thought was to do a ministry trip, it was really just for two crazy naked guys in a cemetery filled with a legion of demons. And they got met at the shore, these disciples who were scared to death of the wind and the waves. When they finally arrived there, there's two crazy demons there, demon-possessed guys who show up. Now, it's a spiritual warfare, but there they were physically, intimidating all the people on that side. All the, it was a 10-city area. All of the people were terrified of these guys. And Jesus comes over, casts out the demons, and he goes back across the sea. It was simply for those two guys. So sometimes the spiritual shows up physically. We were warned that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he describes the warfare that would take place between man and Satan, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, and between your seed and her seed, which is a capital S, Jesus. And he, Jesus, shall bruise your head. He's going to crush you, stomp you, but you shall bruise his heel. You'll get him at the cross, but that's it. But he'll end up defeating you in the process. That's the idea. Snake bites the heel, and all Jesus does is put his heel down and crushes him. Satan thought he had won at the cross. There was a battle raging. Sometimes we don't like to think about it. Maybe even the disciples. Can't we just have peace and harmony? Don't you know that offended them? They would tell Jesus. Don't you know that bothers these guys? He's like, exactly. You remember when Jesus flipped the tables? Talk about Spiritual getting physical. He'd teach and he'd teach and he'd teach until finally, I'm just going to flip some tables now. And he flipped them. I'm done with this. The second time he comes into the temple, does anybody remember what he does? 
makes a whip of cords, and he doesn't make it just to crack it and make some threatening moves. My guess is Saul, the apostle, I bet he felt it. I bet Saul was in the temple at that time. No wonder he had such rage towards Jesus, such rage towards his followers. We don't know that for a fact. I just threw that out there. But somebody got that whip. We don't think like that sometimes. Sometimes he's like, you know what? I told you that I want this court of the Gentiles to be left open for the prayers so the Gentiles can draw near to my father too, just like you Jews do. But you filled it with your money laundering scheme going on here. I'm done with it. Flip tables. It's a war. It's a battle. In Exodus 15.3, we just read this last Wednesday. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yes, it's a spiritual war, but it is a war. And he's looking for people like these Levites that we were talking about, that we've started to discuss, men who knew, this is what I'm doing today. I don't care if I've got a tummy ache or a headache. I'm doing it today. I'm working. I'm serving God. I'm going to do it. It doesn't make any difference. Because they knew how important it was to get the gates opened, to have the utensils ready, to let the spiritual sacrifices begin to be made so that the next group of servants can come in and begin to do. We've got gatekeepers here. I told you I study over in the Hy-Vee parking lot every Sunday morning, kind of go over my notes and everything and told you that. But sometimes that gets a little busy, so I'll drive over here and I'll park over there and up against the back trees over there and kind of go over my notes and I watch the gatekeepers pull in. Usually I'm late. First gatekeeper comes in and gets the lights on, turns the heat up or tries to get, I know you gals are cold this morning. I apologize. But listen, we say, a side note, we set the temperature the same every Sunday. If it's hot outside, it's going to feel colder in here. We never change the temperature in here. And if we don't set the temperature cold uh, with these bazillion watt light bulbs we have on and all your body heat, we can't catch up. So we pre-cool. So I apologize ahead of time. Now, don't talk about it anymore. Just wear a coat, okay? Yeah, and a blanket, whatever. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. Bring what you got to bring, and then you can shed it. You can layer, layer when you come to Calvary Chapel here. I see these guys pulling in. I see the first one come in, and he gets everything ready for the next wave that comes in. The next wave comes in, and our worship team's here by 6 a.m., and they're practicing. This place is open at 5.15 every Sunday morning, and the gatekeepers show up. And as the worship team's practicing, I, need to, I see a little gray car drive in who gets the stuff ready for you guys, the drinks and the coffee and the water, and even prepares a, a breakfast for the worship team. I see that gatekeeper come in. I see these. And the night before, the gatekeepers were here cleaning and watch. I just see this beautiful army coming in ways, all knowing their responsibilities and their tasks, and no one has to tell them what to do because they do it unto God. Because they love Jesus, not because they're going to get busted if they don't, or what? Well, they might bust the worship team if they don't, but they just come in to serve the Lord. It's beautiful, and they know that if I don't show up, who's going to do it? It just doesn't get done, and so they come and they come and they come. There are no volunteers in the army of God. No volunteers. You cannot volunteer to serve the Lord. It doesn't even make sense. You're a servant. You're a slave of the Most High God. You come and do whatever He calls you to do whenever He calls you to do it. And that's a beautiful thing when it's willing. So we see these folks getting ready and preparing themselves and God using military-type language to describe they were very able men for the work of the service of God. And boy, you need to be. 
Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. The commander of the army of the Lord, remember Joshua's about to go into battle, and he's out there looking by himself out in the desert, and he sees somebody. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword, sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, capital H, what does my Lord say to his servant? That's Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus, the table flipper. Jesus, the kid who could have a child on his lap. Also, dress for war when it comes to these things. And we'll see that again in Revelation. When he returns, he comes back on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth for vengeance. It's a battle. It's a war. And finally, in the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy and says this, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, in warfare, entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. So that isn't an Old Testament idea. It's a biblical picture for us. We're all called to this. What is the armor that we're supposed to be wearing? It describes that. Our walk with Jesus is armor helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, and so on. It's war. And we need to be prepared for that. My obligatory Marine Corps story, here it comes. Are you ready? Two places to do your boot camp. One is in Paris Island on that side. So if you were East of the Mississippi, you went to Paris Island. If you were west of the Mississippi, you went to San Diego. And some would say, well, Paris Island's where all the real Marines were made. Well, I don't know about that because I went to San Diego. And it was hard. Because you'd be there practicing war, climbing through sand, doing whatever, jumping up and down, doing your dumb things. And there, there goes the airport, right? Airport's right there. Right on the other side of the fence, and you see the planes taking off. Every once in a while, as your mind is focused on war, thinking about these things and what they're trying to teach you, you remind yourself, the rest of the world ain't doing what you're doing today. They're getting coffee and donuts. They're sleeping in. They're doing all these things. You get to think, that'd be all right. I wonder where that plane's going, you know? And then the Navy guys, their boot camp was right next to us. They'd be getting on buses for the weekend and going off. You know, they, they didn't have to stay there all the time, you Navy guys. There's a lot of Christians out there that are in different phases, different areas. And we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for war. That was the whole point. Regardless of what the rest of the world was doing or how involved or not involved they were in their warfare practices or training or whatever, I knew what my job was going to be if things went south. And that's what I needed to prepare myself for. It wasn't their job to worry about it. It wasn't their job to be thinking about those things. They could go off and do what they wanted to do today because we were doing what we were supposed to be doing today. As Christians, we're light and salt in this world. And so maybe the rest of the world gets, to, gets a free pass on a lot of stuff. We don't as Christians. We don't. We need to be prepared 
prayed up, studied up. We need to know the word of God. We need to understand our faith. So when that person who has been getting a free pass their whole life has a heartache hit their life and they come to the only Christian they know, which is you, and they say, I don't know what to do, we best be able to give them an answer for the reason for the hope which lies within us. Why aren't you affected by these things? Why doesn't this bother you? Why aren't you concerned? I'm glad you asked. I can tell you. I can tell you about my Savior Jesus, and we can talk about these things, and we're in war then at that point. We're doing battle. It is a spiritual warfare, but we need to have the answers. These guys did. Verse 14. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hisab, the son of uh, Ezrakam, the son of... I'm not going to do this. All these guys... And then the Levite gatekeepers, which we just talked about. It says in verse 21, Zechariah, the son of Mishalamiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then there were 212 others, it says in verse uh, 22, that were gatekeepers, preparers, getting the place ready and opening things up. Verse 26, for in this trusted office were four chief gatekeepers. They were Levites. And they had charge over the chambers, the treasuries of the house of God. And they lodged all around the house of God because they had responsibility. And they were in charge of opening it every morning. Not some mornings, but every morning. Other Levite responsibilities were in charge of serving vessels. And they took them out by count. Some of them were appointed over the furnishings and over all the implements of the sanctuary and over the fine flour and the wine and the oil and the incense and the spices and some of the sons of the priests made anointment, or, yeah, ointment, excuse me, for the spices. Just different jobs, different rules. What's your job? I'm the ointment maker. I'm the, uh, I'm the daily bread maker, you know. I'm the guy that opens the door. I'm the guy that keeps people out. But just different responsibilities, so many of them. Mattathiah, or Mattathiah of the Levites, the firstborn of Shulam the Korathite, had the trusted office over the things that were baked in pans. That was his, he was the baker Levite guy, you know? Pretty specific. But they all knew their job. They didn't overlap. They weren't jealous of the ointment maker versus the bread maker. They just did what they were called to do, and it all worked beautifully and all very valuable to God. And some of their brethren of the sons of the Kohathites were in charge of preparing the showbread for every Sabbath. These are the singers, heads of the father's houses of the Levites who lodged in the chambers and were free from other duties, for they were employed in, the work, in that work uh, day and night. These heads of the father's houses, the Levites, were heads throughout their generations. They dwelt at Jerusalem. Their job was to just be worship leaders. David brought that in. That hadn't been introduced until King David shows up and he says, I'm going to have some worship going on constantly in the house of God. And these guys were the guys. That's all they did. They were free from other responsibilities. They just were able to do that just to prepare. And it is a deal. You can practice your guitar. You can practice your drums. You can even practice your vocals and do your scales and everything. That's skill. That's not singing to the Lord. To have a heart prepared to worship God where you close your eyes and you're singing to the Lord with all of this going on, it's a big deal. It's, it's not easy to get distraction-free and still worship, but lead other people in worship with you. It takes a heart for that. And they do. They have that. 
Verse 35, the family of King Saul. And they go through these guys and all these names to remind us, like they did earlier in chapter 8, that Saul's line has not been ended. Yes, he got removed, and we're going to read that in chapter 10 here, but his line has not ended. He's not done with that family because there was a, an indiscretion, a sin, a transgression. Chapter 10. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. This is describing Saul and his son's death. Remember his sons? Remember Jonathan? was one of them. Jonathan was a great guy. Don't we love Jonathan? He was the guy that would go over by himself with the armor bearer, you know, and he says, let's just see if God's with us. Let's throw ourselves in the mix and see what happens, you know. And sure enough, they beat all these Philistines just by the hand of the Lord being with these two guys. Actually, it was just Jonathan. The armor bearer was going behind him, remember, just finishing the guys off as Jonathan's slashing and killing all these guys in this war. That's Jonathan. Good guy. Loves the Lord. Loves David. Uh, They were brothers. Tight. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and uh, Malchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. And we know from other passages that it was mortally. He was eventually going to die from these wounds, we believe. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. You don't kill God's anointed. You know, you let, I'm not doing that. He's greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. He committed suicide or finished himself off. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, or saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now, it's an interesting thing here. Um, I got challenged by John to do the 22 push-ups for 22 days for veterans that are killing themselves, committing suicide. There's 22 a day is the average, and, uh, and uh, I haven't done them yet. I need to get on that. I haven't started yet. Had a lot going on this week, okay? Um, but suicide's an interesting thing. It's a, um, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's where a person gets overwhelmed by the world. They're overcome by it. They can't get past it. To, to live life is worse, obviously, than to find themselves dead, uh, to move on. And it's a tough thing. Um, churches for a long time have taught that that's an unpardonable sin and that you're immediately going to hell. And that's absolutely not true. Um, suicide is not the unpardonable sin. There's only one unpardonable sin that the Bible tells us. And we go by Scripture. We don't go by man's ideas and thoughts. Scripture tells us the unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ. He's the witness of the Holy, or the Holy Spirit's witness of Jesus Christ. To reject the Holy Spirit and his message is to reject Jesus Christ. That's unpardonable because Jesus forgives all sins. The blood of Jesus washes away all our sins. Now, if you reject that washing, well, you know, then you get that. So that's the idea, but not, not suicide. Suicide's a horrible thing, and it causes great damage for those that are left behind. Make no mistake about it. It's an act where... Well, I'll just leave it at that. It's horrible. It's horrible for the people that are left behind. Some of you have been touched by that. I know my family has been touched by that. We've had 
uh, a friend that has committed, had committed suicide, and it was very difficult for a lot of us. Um, but they just overcome. They just enough of this. Satan, Satan, remember Satan does, and and keep the war where it belongs. Satan is a he's designed to kill, steal, and destroy. That's his that's his mission. He's not here to save, convince, or anything like that. He's here to kill and destroy. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring havoc, confusion to us. And sometimes he gets some people. It happens. But that doesn't mean they're lost. See, Saul, when, when we talk about his suicide here or his uh, pulling the plug on his own life, basically, as he was probably mortally wounded, there's no mention of judgment or some kind of impending you know, doom for him for eternity or anything. I think that would be a great time for God to explain that to us if that was the case. But in all the accounts of Saul's death here, none of them talk about that. And so we need to take that to heart. We go off God's word. We don't go off our feelings or church doctrine that's come from men. We have to go by God's word. And God's word does not tell us that that's an unpardonable sin at all. And so we have this and we have this moment here. Um, And God at the end here clarifies this, just so you know, at the end of this chapter, what happened, he sums it up in the final paragraph. Anyway, that's how Saul died. Um, After Saul, the king gets attacked, gets killed, it says that the rest fled their cities. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. When, let me read to you, Mark chapter 14, verse 27 He was warning the disciples of his impending doom, that he was going to die at the cross. And he says to the guys, Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they did. As soon as Jesus was arrested, they began to scatter when he was put on the cross. They definitely scattered. Only John was there. He was the only one present. But after that, even after that, even after the the death. For three days, they cowered in a corner in a room, scared, wondering what was going to become of them, who's coming for them next. And that their Savior had died. And that's, that's a common thing. We see that happening. God, God calls leaders, and when the leader gets struck, it causes a lot of people to wonder. I, I, I wonder if my strength relied completely on them. I wonder if my protection's gone. They, they had put their trust so highly in a person like Saul that when Saul the king, although he wasn't that great of a king, when he gets killed, we're, we're all doomed, and they all scattered and ran for their lives, all but the Jabesh Gilead, which we'll read about in a minute. It's not uncommon. God wants to take out the leaders of the homes. Or not God. Satan wants to take out the leaders of the homes. Forgive me. God wants to lift up the leaders of the homes, but Satan wants to destroy the leaders of the homes. Because if he can destroy the man, if he can destroy the leader of the home, if he can wipe them out, he knows the rest of the family will follow. He can get the kids. He can get the wife. He can get them all. You just got to take out the leader. If I can get them divided, if I can get them to not follow the Lord and to do what they want to do and not what God wants them to do, then I'm going to win, Satan says. I'm here to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what I want to do. And we see that happening in our country. We see as the father is removed from the home and this idea of a Western culture, they call it. Destroying the Western culture of a man and a woman, raising a family, being married. That's not Western culture. It's biblical. And so anybody that comes against Western culture or biblical 
version of a marriage is antichrist. Please know that. Because if we can take out the family, if we can systematically, not just through drugs or through crime or through just the, you know, just the indifference or the sin of a man, if we can get him to, if we can systematically teach kids that men are not needed in the home, that leaders are not needed in the home, the whole generation's gone. Systematic. That's systematic. Watch out for that. War against that. As Christians, we war. We stand up for righteousness. Jesus tells we're supposed to occupy till he comes. I am not a kingdom now theology guy. And if you don't know what that is, some people believe that if we can get the, the world to look like it's supposed to, Jesus will come back. <laughs> Good luck. But some people believe that until we get the world, until we legislate morality all around the world, well, that's never worked, ever. But we stand up for righteousness. We're salt and light. We're the restraining force against evil. When Christians shut up and we stop doing what we're supposed to be doing, evil just fills in that void. It doesn't wait. We need to stand up for righteousness because we're called to occupy till he comes. Occupy. Own it. Don't give up land. Don't give up footing. Fight for it. It's important. Stand up for it. Make yourselves vocal. It may be futile. I understand that. And I've read the end of the book. I know how this turns out. I know what happens in the book of Revelation. I understand that. But it doesn't mean you stop. The Church of Philadelphia is a strong, powerful force on the earth all the way till Jesus comes back again. And we need to be that as a body of believers, as a church. They fled, though. Saul gets taken out and they fled. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news at the temple of their idols and among the people. Yea, we killed the king of the true and living God. And so they boast about it. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head to the temple of Dagon. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. Underline that. They'd had enough. They didn't scatter. They went and got that body. They went and got as much of Saul as they could to go bury him and give a proper burial. Because they remembered that he defeated the Ammonites for them. They remembered what he had done. Saul was a faulted, he was a failed man. He was a, a faulty king. We understand that. But he did do some things right. And these guys understood that. The guys from Jabesh Gilead said, regardless, he's the one that killed the Ammonites for us. We're going to get him. And they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted, and fasted seven days. You understand that that was a clandestine operation, a black ops operation, where they were going to just get a corpse? They didn't even get to beat a, a city or a group of people that hated God or anything like that, or an enemy of Israel. They're just, they went in and risked their lives, all these mighty men of valor, just to get a corpse because of honor. What an amazing group of guys that would have been to be around, right? Here we go. What are we doing? We're going to get that body. What else? 
Just the body. And his brother and his sons. We gotta kill anybody? No, we're just getting the body. Wow. We might die, you know. Mm-hmm. I know. But it's the right thing to do. It's the right hill. I hear that a lot. I'm not gonna die on this hill. Okay. Find out what hill you will die on, though, when it comes to Jesus Christ. That's why we're called Calvary Chapel. It's that hill. That's the hill. See, I'm not rough and, and, and boisterous and loud and obnoxious about Jesus Christ because I love Christianity. Because I want the Christian uh, message to prevail over all the earth, although I do. It's because I love Jesus. He's the love of my life. He gave everything for me. No one in the world, we sang that song, no one has ever loved us like that before. He's the only one that loves us with an everlasting love that sees my sin and regardless, died on the cross for my sins while I was still his enemy. That's who I serve. I don't care who you are that comes against the love of my life. You've become an enemy then. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. There's... There's no other hill to die on but the hill of Calvary, at the cross. If he died for me, certainly I can live my life dying for him. These guys did. I love this. Verse 13, the writer here, Ezra, sums up what happened to Saul. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because uh, he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him. Who killed him? Who killed Saul? God. Ezra says that right there. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And what a great man of God he was, not because he was perfect by any means. He had, just, he had a lot of wives too. He had a lot of sin, committed murder against innocent people. Killed the Uriah, the Hittite. But he knew how to repent. He knew that it was wrong. He knew how he had to get right with God. That was what made David such a great man of God. He knew how to be abased in front of the people. He could care less what people thought of him. He would dance before the Lord. He would become even more undignified than this. He was that kind of guy. Faulty, but a worshiper. You know. I appreciate that. In this conclusion, we kind of miss a point here. I don't know if the writer missed it or not, but I'd noticed it anyway. Jonathan gets caught up in his dad's death. Jonathan was a righteous man. Jonathan lived for the Lord. Jonathan had a tight relationship with the next king, David. Jonathan would go into the Philistines trusting God that God would take care of him, one against an army, and he knew that he was the majority if God was with him. And Jonathan gets caught up. Jonathan dies faithfully serving he served God by serving his dad, by serving Saul. Even though Saul wasn't worthy to serve, Jonathan did it because this is where I belong. This is what I do. I serve God. And this is what he has for me. Jonathan died on a hill that most would say, well, that's unjust. That's unfair. He should have lived. He should have been the next king. Jonathan didn't, care, didn't concern himself with any of that, it seems. I'm just doing what God calls me to do today. And that's all we can do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us all these things and teaching us and strengthening our faith. It needs to be strengthened. We need to have that strength. 
that understanding that we're going to serve no matter what, that we're going to love you no matter what. And um, we want to be those guys, those gals. We want to be those Christians that follow hard after you. You're not in our back pocket. You're not a part of our lives. You're not a, a segment. We don't pigeonhole you or compartmentalize our faith. We live it in everything that we do. In every conversation, in every interaction, Lord, it's you and you alone. We're, we're your ambassadors first and foremost in all things. So, Lord, help us to stand up for righteousness, to know what we believe, to find our lines, to get that hill down that we're going to die on and understand what it is we're called here to be and to do. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.